Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. In this podcast, we take a reading from Scripture each day. We look at the background material to that passage and also application for us. Once again, welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. Welcome to the Illuminated Word. My name is Devin Morris, and today our passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We'll read our section, and then we'll get into it. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gennarosenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you done to me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I, can, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it is that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might come with him, that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This should be a pretty well-known passage to most people. It's one of the more famous uh, demonic episodes we have from Jesus' ministry. This is a parallel text, meaning it's going to be in uh, two other Gospels at least, or at least another Gospel. This one is actually in Matthew and Luke, so Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Mark spends a lot more time here than uh, Matthew. Luke gives a little bit more detail than Mark. Uh, For instance, let's just compare Mark and Matthew. Mark has 330 words. That's how many words he uses to talk about this, this episode. Matthew uses 135 words. So Mark gives a lot more detail to it, a lot more, you know, importance to the reading, and and it fits within Mark's context, his literary context. He's trying to do something particular, so that's the reason his is going to be much more detailed. This is a uh, the second story in a series of four accounts that's demonstrating Jesus's messianic authority. So it starts in chapter four and verse thirty-five, and works through towards the end of chapter five. And so we have an episode of Jesus's authority over nature, which was which which just happened before um, this demonic episode. So Jesus, you know, calms the sea, 
while they're out on the Sea of Galilee. He has authority over nature. We come into this story, and Jesus has authority over demons. The next story in chapter 5 is Jesus heals a woman with a bleeding condition. So he has authority over chronic disease. And then lastly in this chapter, he has authority over death as he raises a young girl back to life. So uh, this whole chapter, or this it's not a chapter, and that's kind of the downside of reading your Gospels, really any, any biblical book. It's the downside of reading any biblical book chapter by chapter. Uh, we know that those chapters and verses didn't come along till the, you know the Middle Ages. Until then, you, you would read the whole thing, or you would at least read um, in whole thoughts. And so what a lot of times you don't get because of chapter and verse divisions are thought divisions, actual paragraph divisions is what we might call them, you know, in modern times, a paragraph. And so uh, our, our paragraph here, our thought, really starts from chapter 4 and verse 35 and works all the way through the end of chapter 5. Jesus's messianic authority over nature, demons, chronic disease, and death. The chronology of what's happening here is difficult. You know, coming from this story of, of being on the water, uh, they apparently set out at evening uh, to, to cross the Sea of Galilee. So that, that trip really should have only taken a couple of hours. The storm naturally would have maybe extended that a little bit more. But it, it's odd if they leave at evening and then they arrive here on the shore um, during the day. So it, it's kind of hard to figure out what, what Mark might actually be saying. You know, maybe he, they actually left really late at night and arose, uh, or arrived here early morning. Or maybe they set out in the evening. It was a pretty quick trip, and they, they got here before the, the sun actually set. And that, that's kind of hard to, to figure out here. But it's daytime. It is morning. You can see the man saw Jesus coming from afar. It's, a, it's interesting to compare... Mark's demonic accounts to, to his other ones. There's three other accounts to compare them to. Chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, and then chapter 1 and verse 34, and then chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. And so there are things that are definitely in common. In all four accounts, you get a, uh, or at least in two of those accounts, you get a challenge from the demon. You get recognition of Jesus' identity, a command from Jesus to have the demons come out. And then an amazed reaction from others. What's significant or unique about this um, demonic account is that you get a, a much lengthier description of the man's condition, what the demons have actually brought onto the man and into the man's life. You have this nice little repost between Jesus and the demons, you know, these snarky kind of comments back and forth. Uh, and then you get the healed man is actually not commanded to be silent like you do in every other demonic episode, and we'll get to that in a second, but is actually told to speak about it and to go tell people what the Lord has done for them. Um, so, a couple of things to point out here. Um, literally, in verse 2, this is how it, how it reads. And he got out of the boat. Immediately it met him from out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. It's meant to, you know, this is supposed to be a, a somewhat terrifying episode. If this was anyone other than Jesus, they would really stand no hope. This, this legion of demons are incredibly strong. Shackles and chains are two separate words, you know, used to denote the shackling that would go around the feet 
and and just general chains. So that could have been you know around his body, on his hands, something like that. But it's it's meant to denote, hey, he is he's really people have attempted to bind him, and you can't bind him. Uh, he harms himself, which is pretty uh, common with um, the depiction of demons in Jewish literature. But it's it's verse two is meant to really put it out there. I love how it's worded. Yeah, and he got out of the boat. Immediately it met him from out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Defiling might be a better word to use here, uh, just because it's not something that's just unclean. Uh, a demon is uh, an unclean thing that can defile other things. When a demon comes into something, it's defiling that thing. The fact that this man comes out of a tomb where dead people are, according to Jewish thought, According to Old Testament teaching, you are defiled. You are ceremonially unclean. Jews would stay away. Jesus does not. This is not the case with Jesus because Jesus does not come to the unclean and then is made unclean by those things. Rather, he comes to the unclean and he purifies. That's what's so beautiful about having Jesus come into the life of a Christian to, to be for the Christian to take in the Holy Spirit, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because we are sanctified by it. We we cannot defile the Spirit. Uh, we can uh, we can only be purified by the Spirit's presence in us. Uh, verses three through four, just kind of setting the scene. Still, uh, plenty of Jewish um, in the in the midrash material, especially uh, demons are kind of always pictured as coming out of tombs, inhabiting tombs. And, and this whole scene is really meant to emphasize the hopelessness of the man's situation. Uh, you know, really emphasize the end of verse 4 there. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to take care of him. No one had the strength to burn, you know, it's, he's completely lost here. This demon has complete control. This man is subdued by the demon. No one can subdue him. The approach of the demon also seems strange. You know, who's who's really in control? Uh, you kind of get this this demon-possessed man running to Jesus. No doubt it was a violent demon, uh, you know, based on what we've read about him so far. No, no doubt he tried to harm other people. Is the demon coming to harm, you know, its next victim? Who's really in control? The fact that the demon falls, the demon-possessed man falls at Jesus' feet is this... The man assuming control and keeping the demon from harming Jesus, or is the demon so overwhelmed by the glory of the divine Son that he falls at Jesus's feet? You know, that's really looking into the text there. I guess going deeper than than what we've got, but it is really interesting that this approach by the demon is is worth looking into because this proskuneo, this bowing down, doesn't doesn't really mean worship. It shouldn't be translated as worship. Most translations of your Bible won't actually say worship. It's just going to say it fell down before him. And that's a good plain reading of it. Don't read it as a worship because that's not really what it looks like. It is more just a bowing down, falling prostrate. The only other time this word's going to be used in the book of Mark is when the Roman guards are mocking Jesus in chapter 15 with this falling down before him. So Mark doesn't even use this word which is normally used to denote worship, he doesn't use it like that. In both cases, it seems to be a negative sense of the word. The demons are not worshiping here, but they are falling down, recognizing um, the, the supremeness of, 
of Jesus here. Uh, the phrase, what to you and to me, is used here of the demons like it is used in other conversations. Jesus uses it in John chapter 2 when he's talking to his mother, when Mary wants him to uh, you know, fix up the wedding at, at Cana. He says, what to you and to me? The demon says the same thing here. It's, it's kind of the uh, colloquialism might be, why are you interfering with me? And this is where maybe we can dive into the whole, what are the demons doing here? See, the demons don't want to leave the region. Uh, if you've ever read through uh, The Unseen Realm or any of Michael Heiser's stuff, he's done a lot of good research on demonic activity and Jewish thought on demons, and it was really believed, and there's some Old Testament support for this, that demons controlled regions. They uh, controlled uh, cities and people groups, and so this demon may not want to leave the region. It's okay if Jesus is going to have to exercise him out of the man, but don't make him leave the region. He still wants to have control there. And he actually appeals to, um, in, in Matthew's account uh, of this same story, he, he refers to, don't do it before the time. And he's referring to like this eschatological event where all the demonic, where all evil forces will finally be um, condemned. And he's saying, you know, you're messing up the timeline here, Jesus. And that's why there almost seems to be some sort of negotiation here between Jesus and the demon. What's going to actually happen with him? It's like the um, the demon is is parlaying with Jesus, so to say. And so Jesus sends him into the pigs, and the pigs are uh, thrown into the sea. And it, it doesn't seem to be by Jesus' hand, it's by the demons. And so why would the demons do that? Um uh, the demons seem to rush into the sea, into the water, because water is always seen as the abyss. Water has kind of this typological, metaphorical sense of chaos, of the place of demons, of, of where evil originates. And so by them throwing these pigs that they've been cast into, into the sea, they're then just homeless again. Kind of like that reference in Matthew chapter 12, where you get the idea when you clean out a house of the spirits, and if you don't fill the house back up, those these wandering spirits will go and gather more of their friends and come back into the house and be even stronger. Well, there seems to be this idea that demons can wander and be homeless, and that's maybe what's happened here with the demons. The last thing that should be pointed out is in chapter, or verses 15 through 20, and that's the reaction, because plenty of space is given to the reaction of both the townspeople and and the demon-possessed man. You know, when people come and find him again, he is still referred to as the demon-possessed man uh, because that's how people remember him. But it's by the power of God that the one possessed by a demon now sits calmly and in his right mind. That's the power of God. And the reaction from the townspeople is normal. We get this. People are usually amazed. People are usually scared. Uh, the disciples had just done a similar thing in the previous episode where Jesus calms the storm. At the side of God's power, so this is the kind of the question for us. You know, the disciples end up asking after this episode on the lake, they say, well, who is this person? And this story kind of elaborates on who Jesus is. This is a man with authority and power, divine authority and power. And so at the side of God's power, the kind of question that keeps coming up is, well, will you worship? Will you give service? Or will you seek to escape his presence? Um, and, and so we get some pretty big uh, different in, difference in reactions here. Um, the last thing to maybe leave us with is is the 
the peculiarity of the man not being accepted into Jesus's cohort. He's not going to become a disciple. Instead, Jesus doesn't command him to be silent, but to go and proclaim. And Jesus doesn't do that in, in the three other episodes with the demons because all of those instances take place um, with Israelites in the land of in the land of the Israelites. This is a Gentile country. Jesus is okay with revealing himself to Gentiles because they don't have any expectations for the Messiah. Israelites do. The Jews have a, a specific Messiah that they want, and Jesus doesn't fit any of their preconceived notions. So Jesus doesn't reveal himself to them. But he does here to the Gentiles. A lot of cool stuff uh, in this section. Hopefully it's been a good study. Hopefully you'll look into it yourself and consider what God's trying to tell you today through Scripture. I hope you're looking for ways to love and serve your neighbor in genuine and sincere ways. Peace and love.